Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral's Lights, show number 87. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Now I come to this mic today, and it's actually a brand new mic and a brand new laptop as well, but I come to this mic a little bit down, a little bit down in the dumps. I've just listened to Newcastle United football team get relegated from the Premiership, and it's... Geordie's all around the world today, now I cry and trust us, it is a bitter pill, especially on Tyneside, you know, that football is so passionate over here, you know, like the supporters, it's just everywhere, it's in your blood, it's everywhere, and to see your team go down, not any team go down, do you know what I mean, but when it's my team, it's a bitter pill, so normally it's a fun pack show, but there is a little tear in my eye today as I bring this fantastic show so do stick around and enjoy the show as you can see we have some fantastic artwork there by Stephen G. BME do look out for that. I'll, it'll be in the feed. It'll be everywhere, to be quite honest. So hopefully you go over the, from the website and see a nice big image of that one to do with the Lavi Tadar story, Transylvanian Mission. Excellent stuff. We've got Curtis Hillenberg again, the youngest poetry writer on the Starship Sova. He comes in there with a fantastic poem as well this time. We have Fact Article by Corey Doctorow. Like I say, main fiction comes from Lavi Tidar, Mission Transylvania, or Transylvanian Mission, should I say. Narrated by JJ Campanella as well. Ho ho, special stuff. We have English Assassin comes in with another fine review. A fun packed show with a fantastic, stunning bit of artwork, but a bit of a miserable Geordie at the end of this mic here, so apologise. Don't worry about me, we'll get over it. We're a strong race as Geordies. So first up is a little bit poorly. It comes from, again, Curtis Hillenberg, who is 14 years of age. Just he says, just trying to get as many people exposed to his writing as possible. Well, Curtis, you're doing a grand thing here on the Starship Sofa. Links will be to Curtis's site, and it's narrated again by Julie Davis. Julie Davis over there at Forgotten Classics. Do pop over and say hello to both of them. And Curtis, guess what? You are not the, the youngest lad who listens to the Starship Sober. I forgot his name, but I got an email straight after yours, to be quite honest, to just say there was someone else who was younger who listens to the Starship Sober. So, Curtis, thou hast been knocked off the perch. Don't let that put you off sending more work. So the Starship Sober and her oral delights is so proud to have Curtis Hillenberg with... E7. It is always dark in E7, and it is always cold, and there is bogies everywhere. There's vamps and zoms and wares abound. 
So don't ever go down into E7. It's unsafe down there. Where's Papa? Papa is long gone. Don't ask about him. He went down to E7 and was never heard from again. I'll save my father. I'll save my father, as it has been many a year since I sat alone in a crib and thought of E7 in fear. I have a shocker in my eye socket and a bang stick in my hand. With a compu on my wrist, I shall soon find my father with my GPS tracking system. Don't leave, my son. Don't leave, my son, for I have cause to fear. For since your father left, I have shed many a tear, and I don't want to lose you too. Mission Log, Day One I have breached e seven seal, and what is it that I see? but a disembodied head staring up at me. I realized with a disgusting lurch it was my father's head. I trudged on in disgrace, at my mission failed so soon. I cannot return in such dishonor with a mission failed, when suddenly from the front of me jumps a vamp that I can see, and I can feel those sharp fangs sinking into me. But before he can convert me, I look at him and glare. The shocker activates, leaving nothing there but hair. I camp out that night in the corridor with the portable sentry I sent out. I have nothing to fear. Mission Log, Day 2 The sentry awakes me with a chirp, its dying message to the world, before it recharges to scout again. I wake up and, after a processed meal, go out into the darkness. It is then that I hear the ever-smallest noise, a meow. Instantly I am on my guard. Bogies make such sounds of animals long extinct to lure innocents out of an airlock of this planet ship named Gaia Post, the home to your parents and to mine and back before remembering. Yet... As I come closer, I see it is smaller than a bogey, and as puzzlement turns to disbelief, I see it is a kitty after all. It sends me an untrustful glance and keeps on mewing ever on as I ready my bang stick, switch settings to send the sound to paralyze, not to kill. The kitty notices my weapons for the first time and changes... Its eyes bulge out, its fur ripples, and plates stick out of its once smooth back. It glares up at me with its steel eyes, and I can hear the artificial quality of its meows as they get louder, ever louder, as I crumple to the ground. I wake to the sounds of snarling as the kittyborg faces off with a wear unlike any I have seen. Suffice it to say, it makes the Gorlians look like the fuzzies of Euclipean Nine, and as I watch the kitty-bot get punted by one scaly foot, which then descends toward me on its way to the Borg. But I react, my finger twisting the knob from stun to kill. I unleash the directed sonic and watch as the wear screams in pain, and slowly, ever so slowly, 
crumples to the ground. The kitty Borg looks up at me in adoration. I think I'll call him Pat. Epilogue, perhaps a hint of more. It has been sixty years since that fateful day, and as you well know, Pat and I have been through a lot. But after each mission for the new UN, I come back here and pray to my father's head, which I froze later that same fateful day. I hope I would make him proud. There you go again. Copyright is courtesies. Don't go out there, you know, changing. But do, by all means, play it everywhere like that. But don't change it. Don't make certainly don't make any money off it. And Julie Davis, Julie, you are a star. Thank you so much for that. So next we are getting into a little bit of a fact article, and it's by none other than Cory Doctorow. It is. It was first published over at Locust Online, and it's just come out. I think within the last month, it's Cory Doctorow's new article. Extreme Geek, and it's narrated by, as usual, Paul Kajiji. And I want to try and make a habit of getting these, getting Corey's articles and playing. I mean, they, they put up there, they're kind of there for everyone to use. And it's just nice to get his thoughts on kind of what's happening, what's developing in the kind of online world, and it's always nice to spread that about. So, Starship Sova presents... Extreme Geek by Corey Doctorow. I am by no means the geekiest SF writer working in the field today. On the power law curve of geekiness, there are many ancient and gnarly masters before whom I am but a noviate, barely qualified to check the syntax in their shell scripts. Strauss, I'm looking at you here. Nevertheless, I am far more geeky than average, and that geekiness has crept into my writing practice in a way that is very close to perfectly geeky in as much as it probably costs me as much effort as it saves me, in as much as it delights me, and in as much as it points the way to civilian applications that someone else might want to develop into products that the less geekified may enjoy. In that spirit... I offer you three quirky little tassels from the fringes of technology and SF writing. Number one, business. Book donation program. This is the lowest tech entry on the list, but it's also the most generally applicable. As you know, Bob, I give away all my books as free Creative Commons licensed e-books the same day they go on sale in stores, on the grounds that for most people, a free e-book is more apt to entice them to buy the print book than to substitute for it. But there is a small minority, mostly other geeks, for whom the e-book is all they want and who, nevertheless, want to see the writers they enjoy compensated. Bless them. They write to me with some variation on, can't I just send you a donation? And my answer has always been no, because... Number one, I don't want to have to bookkeep, file taxes on, and otherwise track your $5. Number two, I don't want to cut my extremely valuable and useful publisher out of the loop. And number three, I don't want to reduce my print book's sell-through rates, which determine advanced sizes, print runs, and bookstore orders. So traditionally, I ask my readers to compensate me by donating a book to a school or library or halfway house. But... Practically speaking, this isn't very useful advice. 
Most of us have no idea how to give books away to schools or libraries. Do you just show up at the reception desk with a book, shove it in the clerk's hand, and say, "Here, this is for you"? Starting with my novel Little Brother, I've been doing something different. I actually provide a matchmaking service to connect donors with willing recipients. I hired an assistant, the talented Olga Nunes, to monitor through a Google Mail address that I published in a solicitation to schools, libraries, etc., telling them to email their work contact details if they want a free copy of the book. Olga vetted these to ensure that they weren't fakers or scam artists, and then posted a geographically sorted list of would-be donees to my site. Then I put the word out to potential donors that there was an easy, or at least easier, way to compensate me if you liked the ebook and didn't need the hard copy. Visit your favorite bookstore and buy as many copies as you'd like for any of the organizations that solicited donations. Then email us the receipt so we can cross them off the list. Judging from donor emails, many of them just gave to the first outstanding request. Others look for requests from their region. And others judged by merit. Some donated several copies, as much as fifteen. As I type this, we've given away well over two hundred copies to people who really wanted the book. I got the sales number. My publisher got the sale. The library or school got the material, and the reader got to feel like she or he had paid for the value she or he had received. Now, this wasn't cheap. I needed to hire someone with the good judgment to tell scammers from honest people, and with the HTML skills to format and update the page. I definitely spent at least twice as much as I made on this program. As a commercial venture, it was a flop, but as a proof of concept, it was a ringing success. There is a market opportunity here for someone who wants to automate the service. I envision something run jointly by, say, the American Library Association, or maybe the International Federation of Library Associations, and the Adopt a School program to ease vetting. That works with a couple dozen booksellers, national and local, and lists books by all kinds of authors and requests from all over the world. Donors can either get a suggestion for a book to donate, perhaps based on preferences like science fiction or young adult novels. And school in my area, or school in the nation's poorest zip codes, and with a few clicks, donate a book, receiving a tax deduction receipt in return. Number two, research. Twitter meets notekeeping. I'm in the middle of a research-intensive novel for which I've read some fifty or sixty books. I've made extensive notes as I did, unconsciously falling into a Twitter-style shorthand in my long text file. For example. Point one: Newborn babies are swaddled tightly at birth. It tames them. If you aren't swaddled, you grow up wild and restless. Socialism seventy-nine. Hash China. Hash childhood. Hash control. Point two: Louche boy wearing wide-bottom trumpet trousers and shirt rolled up to expose his belly on a hot day. Socialism eighty-six. Hash China. Hash fashion. Point three: Drink vinegar is conjugal jealousy. Socialism. Number one five five hash China hash slang hash romance. These notes are from Socialism is Great, Li Jiajiang's amazing memoir of life in rural China during the period of economic reform and industrialization. 
The hashtags are loose categories that each note seemed to fit into while I was writing them down. These notes and hundreds more live in a text file. As I made these notes, I had a sense that somewhere there'd be a program that would pass through them, generating a tag cloud with clickable links to different hashtags contents. Unfortunately, as this file grew longer, I realized that no such program existed. I put the call out to the readership at Boing Boing, the blog I co-edit, and Dan McDonald, one of my readers, came through with a fantastic little Perl script called tagcloud.pl that does exactly this, passing all my notes into a database that I can search or query visually by clicking on the cloud. Now, as I write the novel, this has become an invaluable aid. For one thing, it lends itself to a kind of casual, clicky browsing in which one hashtag leads to another, to a search query, to another tag, exploring my notes in a way that is both serendipitous and directed. For another, the format is one that comes naturally to me because of all the other services I use, such as Twitter, that employ this telegraphic brief style. Dan's Perl script is freely licensed and can be downloaded from perlmonks.org backslash question mark node underscore ID equals 707360. Number three, process, flashbake. I know a lot of archivists and one of their most common laments is the disappearance of the distinct draft manuscript in the digital age. Pre-digital, authors would create a series of drafts for their work, often bearing handwritten notations, tracking the thinking behind each revision. By comparing these drafts, archivists and scholars could glean insights into the author's mental state and creative process. But in the digital era, many authors work from a single file, modifying it incrementally for each revision. There are no distinct individual drafts, merely an eternally changing scroll that is forever in flux. When the book is finished, all the intermediate steps that the manuscript went through disappear. It occurred to me that there was no reason that this had to be so. Computers can remember an insane amount of information about the modification history of files. Indeed, that's the norm in software development, where code repositories are used to keep track of each change to the code base, noting who made the change, what she or he changed, and any notes she or he made about the reason for the change. So I wrote to a programmer friend of mine, Thomas Gideon, who hosts the excellent command line podcast, thecommandline.net, and asked him which version control system he'd recommend for my fiction projects, which one would be easiest to automate so that every couple of minutes it checked to see if any of the master files for my novels had been updated, and then check the updated ones in. Thomas loved the idea and ran with it creating a script that made use of the free and open-source control system Git, the system used to maintain the Linux kernel, checking in my pros at 15 minutes intervals, noting with each check-in the current time zone on my system clock, where am I, the weather there, as I fetched from Google, what's it like, and the headlines from the last three Boing Boing posts, what am I thinking. Future versions will support plugins to capture even richer metadata, Say, the last three tweets I tweeted, and the last three songs my music player played for me. He called it Flashbake, a neologism from my first novel, Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom. I was honoured. 
It was an incredibly rich, even narcissistic, amount of detail to capture about the writing process, but there's no reason not to capture it. It doesn't cost any more to capture all this stuff every 15 minutes than it would to capture a daily file change snapshot at midnight without any additional detail. And since Git and other source repositories is designed to let you summarize many changes at a time, say all the changes between version 1 and version 2 of a product, it's easy to ignore the metadata if it's getting in the way. Now, this may be of use to some notional scholar who wants to study my work in a hundred years, but I'm more interested in the immediate users I'll be able to put it to. For example, summarizing all the typos I've caught and corrected between printing of my books. Flashbake also means that I'm extremely backed up. Git is designed to replicate its database to other servers in order to allow multiple programmers to work on the same file. And more importantly, I'm keen to see what insights this brings to light for me about my own process. I know that there are days when the prose really flows and there are days when I have to squeeze out each word. What I don't know is what external factors may bear on this. In a year or two or three, I'll be able to use the flashbake to generate some really interesting charts and stats about how I write. Does the weather matter? Do I write more when I'm blogging more? Do fast writing days come in a cycle? Do I write faster on the road or at home? I know myself well enough to understand that if I don't write down these observations and become an empiricist of my own life, that all I'll get are impressionistic memories that are more apt to reflect back on my own conclusions to me than to inform me of things I haven't noticed. Thomas has released Flashbaker's free open software. You can download and start tinkering at bitbucketlabs.net backslash flashbake. As I said, it's not the kind of thing that an info civilian will be able to get using without a lot of tinkering. But in the month I've used it, I've already found it to be endlessly fascinating and useful. And with enough interest, it's bound to get easier and easier. There you go. As usual, go over to, well, you know where Cory Doctorow is, boingboingcraphound.com. We have some exciting news coming about Cory Doctorow soon as well, so do listen out for that. And Cory has promised to go on the Sofa Notes. So, get subscribing to the Sofa Notes. Next up is Main Fiction, and it comes from Lavi Tidar. And if you listen to the Sofa Notes, Jeremy Talbot, aka Jeremiah Talbot, Jeremy was one of the first to give kind of Lavi Tidar a kind of shot at getting his work published and that. So, um, you know, it's all kind of a bit one big happy family here. And like I say, this story is great and it's narrated by JJ Campanella. Do you know what I mean? JJ Campanella's got, and I keep on forgetting that when Jim sends over some work, I keep on forgetting to email him back and saying, thank you, I've got it. So he's getting a little bit upset with us. <laughs> Sorry, Jim. But I'll give you a heads up for Lavi Tidar, who grew up in a kibbutz in Israel and has lived in South Africa and most of the UK. He currently lives in Southeast Asia and he has scheduled for a publication date on the 1st of September. He has got this book called The Apex Book of World Science Fiction Anthology coming out. And actually, if you buy that, you get for $10 one of his other books, Hebrew Punk. And that's all be shipped out 1st of September. He also has written... A Tel Aviv dossier and an occupation of angels and many a short story. So there you go. And like I say, it's narrated by JJ Camanella, who needs no introduction. A fantastic school teacher there and an amazing narrator. 
So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present Transylvanian Mission by Lavi Tidal. Carpathian Mountains, May 1944. It was an old man's war, the rat thought for the hundredth time. He surveyed the despondent group of aged troops inside. Spread on the damp ground, the partisans sat, huddled each into themselves. Stars shone with a pale, sickly light over the thick canopy of trees. The Allies' recon officer was standing to one side, shaving blindly, swearing in a mixture of languages each time he cut himself. The rat smelled the blood, tasting it on his tongue. The Englishman was an unnecessary complication. He shrugged and went back to his book, a small, hardbound English edition of Bram Stoker's Dracula, and continued to struggle with the uncomfortable language. Naturally, or rather unnaturally, he thought with a trace of amusement, he had no problem reading the book in what his troops would consider near total darkness. The irony of that, and of reading this book in particular, did not escape him. They were waiting. The small group of Jewish refugees have been waiting for so long that they have lost all thought of victory. The old and the infirm, the invalids and the mad, left behind while their families and friends were carted off by train to faraway Poland and killed, as efficiently and as coldly as a rat catcher disposes of rats. Now they took refuge in the mountain terrain of the Carpathians, hiding on the Romanian side of the border, spending what time they had left in puny raids against the Germans, which seemed to have no effect, no effect at all. The last recon officer, another unpleasant Englishman, Mallory was his name, was quite scathing about it. They found him one morning lying naked in a pool of melted snow. The grass around him was yellow where the group of Iele had feasted on him during the night. The partisans had put a stake through his heart and left him to rot. It didn't take long. There was the sound of a bird hooting in the distance. The rat put the book away and stood up, waiting. A minute later, young Pater burst into the clearing, his misshapen face excited. Without expression, the rat gave him a bottle of wine and waited while the boy drank. Report, he asked at last, seeing that Pater's breathing had settled. The boy was the only one left of his family. He was saved by an old neighbor who had kept him on his isolated farm, made to work at the pens and the house, and later at night at the old man's bed. For all that, he had retained an innocence that owed the rat thought more to his deformed birth than to reality. Yet for all that was still touching, still somehow noble. It was best, the rat thought sometimes, if all the children of the age were born simple, so that they wouldn't know it when the Nazis took them, when the showers opened up and Zyklon B came pouring out instead of water. Peter's usually cheerful countenance showed excitement. There are p -p people coming, he announced, f -f -f from across the b -b -b border, here. He thrust a crumpled piece of paper into the rat's hand, gazing up at him, complete trust in his eyes. From Lalo. The rat opened the paper, motioning for the kid to sit himself down. 
Someone passed Pater bread, and he sat munching at it happily. The rat scanned the note, his interest quickening. He motioned for the Englishman. What do you think? he asked, passing him the note. The Englishman fumbled for matches, cursed as he lit one, and cupped it protectively in his hand. He read the note and shrugged. With a look, he suggested, his put-upon drawl negating the words. His reaction was interesting, the rat thought. Very casual. Very nonchalant. Was there anything about these from HQ? The Englishman shrugged again. Not a word. The rat didn't like it. There were not many people coming across the border from occupied Hungary, even though the Romanian government was allied with the Nazis. For anyone to make the trip to this remote location, the reason had to be important. He didn't like the implications of that. His little group of partisans, assembled as much by loss as by any real desire to inflict damage on the Germans, did not make a very strong strike force. He was the first to admit. The aged and the infirm and the sick. It was, he thought yet again, an old man's war they had stumbled into. Nevertheless, he motioned for his troops to prepare for movement. Nestled between mountain ranges, the city of Brasov lay like a sparkling jewel amidst the darkness of the Carpathians. Pinpricks of light burned like a promise of tranquility. Here there were still Jews. The partisans were arranged in a crescent moon high above the road leading into the city from Sahisora and beyond. From Nazi-occupied Hungary, they waited in silence. The rat crouched, his senses alert. There was blood on the wind again. Old, sick blood. And something else that was less familiar. A musky scent. An animal-like and threatening scent. Like a strigoi, he thought suddenly. Remembering the rare times he had run into one of their kin, roaming the mountains in the guise of a wolf or a dog. But there had been none that he knew of for at least a hundred years. Whatever this smell was, it was not local, not part of the unnatural fauna of Transylvania. He quieted the sense of unease and settled himself to wait. Lalo's note was ambiguous, uncertain, his handwriting jutting over the page like the handiwork of a crazed spider. People are coming, was all it said, from across the border. Watch for them on the way to Brasov. Even committing this much to paper was dangerous. Whoever was coming must have been important to warrant a note. They all liked Pator, but sometimes, if you wanted to make sure. There were faint sounds on the wind, growing in volume as they came near. Jeeps, he thought. Two, maybe three. Scents of gasoline. Gasoline and gunpowder and the heavy musk of some feral animal, one that fed on rotting meat and corpses. He spat quietly and suddenly grinned, his elongated fangs slicing the night air. Nazis. He could smell them, coming nearer. The sound of car engines grew louder. Soon they could see beams of light moving nearer, wavering wildly on the dirt road. The partisans cowered into the ground, feeling a sudden fear, like a physical object hurling at them from the moving jeeps. The rat burrowed deeper into the shadows, his face contorting in sudden rage. Like Strigoi, 
He glanced at the Englishman, saw him fingering the small silver cross at his neck. He knew what they were. The rat filed the information away and watched. Two, three, four jeeps. One large truck, ambling like a drunkard below. Machine guns, one for every jeep. They moved in a protective formation. Two jeeps in the front, two at the rear, guarding the truck. Someone or something important is in there, he thought. He watched, recording the scene in his mind, noting the number of indistinct shapes in the open jeeps, estimating military capacity, potential weak spots. The fact that he couldn't see the figures clearly bothered him. Like Strigoi. The thought hammered at him insistently. Like dogs. Like wolves. There were rumors. Directly underneath them, the convoy suddenly stopped. The shapes in the jeeps shifted. Blurred faces looking up, scanning the horizon. The partisans shrunk even deeper into the embrace of the dark. The rat held his breath but their position was faultless. High, secure, and, as far as the convoy below was concerned, ineffective. They were strictly observers, for now. As if satisfied of that, sensing that what had disturbed them was not an immediate threat, the jeep's engine started again, and the convoy slowly passed from view, disappearing at last into the gates of Brasov. The rat sidled close to the Englishman, who was crouching low in the surrounding shrubs, a little way away from the partisans, as if their presence made him uncomfortable. What were those things? he asked conversationally, his voice low. S.S.? The Englishman spat on the ground, his hand still fingering the cross around his neck. What do you think? In answer, the rat moved. Elongated fingers, their nails stretched and sharpened like unpolished knives, move with lightning speed and grab the officer by the throat. The rat lifted the Englishman into the air, slamming him against a nearby tree, and held him there, choking, a foot above the earth. I don't think, the rat said. Around them the silence was even more pronounced than before, as each partisan studiously avoided taking any notice of the scene taking place. Now why don't you tell me what the fuck those things were, and why you don't seem very surprised to see them here? And perhaps, if you would be so kind, you could fill me in on what HQ do have to say about this little nightly excursion. He could feel his fangs protruding, hurting his jaws, saw the effect of the raw smell of his breath, like dry old blood on the suffocating Englishman. He had to feed. Soon. He only wished it could be now. This place, this person. With regret, he loosened his grip, and the Englishman fell to the floor, his hands around his neck. He was breathing heavily, making wheezing, choked sounds. So, now, the rat said at last, what do you know? The night was coming slowly to an end. The rat moved like a shadow through the dark cobbled streets of Brasov, a deeper darkness that seemed to suck starlight and the occasional illumination of a lamp carried drunkenly down narrow alleyways. He waited.
lengthened nails and fangs like needles, and coarse, dark hair accumulating like fine dust over his frame. Hunger. Hunger and, at the back of the mind, apprehension. He was worried. Worried of the thing the Englishman had said. They're fucking werewolves, he had said at last, massaging his bruised neck. The Gestapo's very own wolf commando. HQ said a whole unit of them was ordered to Berlin two weeks ago at the expressed orders of the Führer. He stopped, drawing air desperately into his lungs. The look he gave the rat was incredibly a look of reproach, as if he were merely disappointed with the ungentlemanly behavior of this uncouth field officer. Just like the last one, the rat thought grimly. The Allied officers simply refused to acknowledge anything that smacked of the supernatural, and that, quite frankly, made them a liability. It made them careless. You remember the one before Mallory, an Armenian man, ex-Air Force. He wasn't so bad, just wanted to get out of the war any way he could. The mound of earth where they had buried him, deep in the mountains, testified to the way his final escape had come about. The rat waited. The residents of Brasov were not as skeptical. Crosses hung in windows, on doors. Bunches of garlic dangled from window frames, unobtrusively. He grimaced. The crosses naturally didn't bother him, but the garlic was unpleasant. No one, of course, was fool enough to put silver where it could be stolen. Finally, noise reached him. The figure of a man lurched onto the road, bottle in hand. He was muttering to himself, large frame but unsteady. Good. Probably a farmer on a night in the town. He waited until the man was passing right by him, almost touching the shadow that was the rat, and attacked, and was pushed against the wall with inhuman strength, the bottle smashing against his face, spraying him with shards of sharp, painful glass. A trap. He ducked a second punch and drove his razor-like nails into the man's abdomen, hard, moving up in a bloody arc through his body, opening a large, gaping gash. The man screamed, a high, keening howl that turned into a low growl of rage. His body shifted impossibly in the starlight, coarse, hard fur growing over his skin, his frame changing, hands becoming large, threatening forelegs. Large, wet teeth bit at the rat's leg. He kicked and connected, and as the wolf howled again, flew at it, sinking fangs into its belly. It was not a pretty sight, not the gentle bleeding of a man or woman as they stood unresisting, trapped against him. This time was different, a feeding frenzy against a dying, dangerous animal. He stooped by the side of the wolf, crouching in a growing pool of blood, and fed like an animal himself, organs torn out and discarded onto the pavement, bones cracked and broken by his probing fingers, and the blood, the blood flowing into him, something between animal and man, blood that came gashing and gashing out. When he was finished, it was nearly dawn. The sun sent pale fingers against the horizon like the promise of an iron fist. He had to leave. At his feet, the corpse of a young-looking man lay like a deflated doll.
The Nazis departed the next day. Of the dead soldier there was no mention. The rat guessed they preferred to keep their journey and the nature of the soldiery itself quiet. It was not long ago that Germany had officially invaded Hungary, and there was talk now that the days of the Iron Guard were soon to be over, and that Romania should join the Allies. Dangerous talk for the moment, but the reality was that the Nazis were becoming less than welcome. They did not, however, go far. It was late evening the next day. The rat crouched low behind a boulder, observing the little camp the wolf commando had established in the common underneath the castle. Two small fires burned between vehicles and tents, arranged in a protective square. Of all the figures moving in the dark, only one man was clear to his vision. The rest, the werewolves, were blurred, as if light bent itself around them in strange, confusing angles. The man was young and fit-looking, dressed in the uniforms of a senior officer. In his hand he held a riding crop, which he was tapping methodically against his boots. They were, he thought, waiting for something. He motioned to Lalo, the Hungarian resistance's contact person with the Jewish partisans. He had shown up shortly after his delivered note, but remained stubbornly reticent with further information. The rat suspected that, in honesty, Lalo simply didn't know. He was there representing the concerns of the Hungarians, whose channels of information were limited. The arrival of the Nazi troops left them worried. Understandably. What do you think they're up to? He asked nevertheless. Lalo spat carefully on the ground and made the sign of the cross in the air. The lines of his face were pronounced, etched in deeper grooves than before. The man was afraid. Dracul, he said the word like a curse. The rat grimaced as the man once again spat ritually on the ground and made the sign of the cross. Fucking peasants. Don't be an idiot, he said at last, still watching the Nazis. No devils, at least not apart from the ones right in front of us. The German officer was preparing something. Curious tools medical implements of polished metal gleaming in the firelight. The wolves were also moving now, checking weapons, talking in low voices that did not carry over to where Lalo and the rat hid. Nevertheless, the feeling of expectation was tangible. They were preparing to move. The rat made his decision. Lalo, go back to camp, he said. Bring some of the boys over to keep an eye on them during the night. And you, rat? Lalo's face betrayed a mixture of his suspicion and relief. He didn't trust him, the rat knew, just as he, in turn, did not trust Lalo and his masters. Yet the man's relief at leaving this place was tangible. I'll stay here. His eyes had not left the German officer. I want to see where they're going. He waited until the Hungarian left, disappearing into the dark forest like a wild cat leaving barely a footprint in his passage. He was good. He had to give him that. He waited. After fifteen minutes, the Nazis were apparently ready. At the command of their officer, they began to march, assuming the same formation they did with their vehicles. From afar, it looked unnatural. The man surrounded on all sides by blurred figures, as if he walked in a circle of darkness. They began to move up the hill, toward the castle. 
Bran Castle stood like a fairy mirage, failing completely in the rat's opinion to look the part of a sinister dwelling. It was built by the knights of the Teutonic Order over seven centuries before, and its main claim to fame was its temporary occupancy in the 15th century by the Impaler. Now it was supposed to be occupied by members of the royal family. The queen, it was said, was exiled by her husband, King Carol, who had found himself enchanted by a new mistress, a Jewish one, no less. Others said it was Princess Ileana who lived there, fleeing Hungary from the Nazis. It didn't, however, appear to be currently occupied. The rat hurried like a shadow along the cliff wall, the light of a near-full moon sending a shiver of apprehension down his spine as he thought of the wolf commando ascending to the same place. Castle Dracul, the Devil's Castle. The rat climbed in the shadow of Mount Busegi to the castle. There was a gun hole there, a narrow shaft through which arrows would once have been shot. With distaste he changed. A rat climbed through the narrow shaft and entered the castle. A vampire stalked Bran Castle once more. At least if the old stories were in fact true, the rat remembered Tepis vaguely, a petty tyrant like so many of the ones before him and after. In Paler, yes, but no kind of Strigoi the rat had ever seen. He lived briefly, and he died, and that was that. Until now. He changed back, hauling his clothes through the narrow gun shaft, dressing in silence. He was inside a walled court that was open to the stars. The castle rose above him, looking, he thought, more homey than foreboding. A rather comfortable, solid structure. There were flowers in the courtyard and a tree. He moved cautiously forward, entering a small room that appeared to be a chapel. A basin of holy water stood by the wall, and he dipped his hand into it, flicking the water against the wall wondering for the hundredth time why some of his kind found the substance, no different to regular water, as far as he could tell, to be so deadly. There were sounds coming from above. The Nazis were in the castle. The rat suddenly felt uneasy, as if the presence of the Nazis somehow had disturbed the castle, was slowly awakening something old and rather unpleasant. Nonsense. He followed the source of the noise. We must find the crypt, a voice said sharply in the dark. It was the officer. We will have Mangula, a second voice answered, a hint of amusement in its tone. We will. Mangula. That was Mangula, the butcher of Auschwitz. The name echoed in Rat's ears. He felt bloodthirst consuming him, a burning flame of anger and hate that threatened to take control of him. He stilled with an effort, breathing slowly. Search the castle, look for hidden pathways, be extremely cautious. He must still be alive, his voice shook in sudden passion. And he killed one of you, as if Moritz was nothing but a chicken to be plucked. The staccato beat of his riding crop increased. They must think it was Tepis who killed their boy in Brasov. The thought made him grin, and his tongue ran alongside his teeth, like a soldier checking his weapons. The rat climbed cautiously up to the second floor, catching sight of the German in the distance, standing by a suit of armor. We must find him! 
Mengele's eyes had an unnatural glow in the dark. Find him and bring him over to the Reich. Do you hear that, Rakul? He suddenly shouted. I could make you the prince of this little land again. There was no answer. Yet the hairs on the rat's arms stood suddenly, the second time in so many minutes. So this was what the Nazis were about. He should have guessed. Hitler must have found the old impaler practically inspiring. Idiots. He slid alongside the walls, giving the German a wide berth. Only the two soldiers were with him, and they were occupied. He entered another chapel, a room made up in old-fashioned Gothic architecture. More holy water. This place, in a way, had quite high security. He wondered why. How Mangula! The sudden shout echoed, distorted against the cold stone walls. We've found a hidden staircase! The beat of boots against flagstones, rapidly. He followed at a distance. The soldiers he saw have hacked away at the wall, exposing a large passage, lined with stairs heading upwards. Mengele's riding crop made rapid rhythm against his boots. See what's up there, he said. Two of the soldiers hurried into the passageway. The rat retreated to his original position and used the stairs. Everything was going according to plan. He climbed up to the second floor. No sign of the soldiers. Third. Fourth. He paused. As battles went, the rat later had to admit to himself, this one was something of a farce. A room. A darkness that was more than the absence of light. He stepped cautiously, sliding along the wall, his every sense alert, and was blinded by the sudden glare of an electric lamp, the powerful projector catching him like a stag in the glare of a jeep, trapped. Three shadows, cornering him, blurred, werewolves. He lashed out, meeting no resistance, overbalanced. Blind, he was helpless, not daring to change his shape, not in the presence of the three big fucking dogs. Still, he made to run. It could have worked. A quick dive through the window, and he'd be flying down the cliff, away from the castle. It would have hurt, but he would have survived. It didn't happen. He felt a sharp jab in his back, and the world went black. It was some time later. Tell me about Dracula, Dr. Mengele said patiently. His voice was surprisingly pleasant, yet it was offset disconcertingly by the staccato sound of his riding crop tapping against the dark leather riding boots he wore. The rat grinned through bloodied lips. The Nazis have strapped him into a metal chair that felt cold and strangely slimy against his skin. They have bound him meticulously. Wires of metal, in which iron was woven with fine strands of silver and gold, held his legs and arms and through the wires, like a whisper of death, came the faintest touch of raw electricity. It was, for now, only a tingle in his flesh, but its implications were obvious. Dracula, Dr. Mengele prompted. The riding crop taps went just a fraction faster. The rat mentally shrugged. Well, he said. He adopted the didactic voice the one before last Allies' recon officer had often used. 
In guttural German, it sounded strange. It is essentially a love story, taking its cue from both the travel novel and, to an extent, the English pornographic tradition that starts with Fanny Hill. Flash. The rat has known pain. Pain, after all, was a part of life. And in a life, or at least undeath, metaphysics wasn't really his field. As long as his, there was pain in plenitude. The rat screamed as the current shot through his bloodied body, his figure metamorphosing wildly in the agony as his mind lost control, became subsumed by the all-encompassing pain. The wires, like living, serpentine things, shrunk and expanded along with his changing body, keeping him bound. Then it was gone, as if someone simply pressed a button labeled pain, which he realized when his mind came to, and his body, was exactly what happened. It was what he had found most scary about Mengele, he suddenly understood. Every other person would have threatened him with exposure to the sun, with holy symbols, religious iconography, even as Tepes was found of doing to his enemies, impaling him through the rear, a particularly unpleasant method that would have kept even a mortal man alive for several hours, and the rat undoubtedly longer. But those methods were not for Mengele. For him, the process had to be clinical and precise, a measured, scientific way of inflicting the most amount of pain with the least amount of mess and fuss. The rat coughed and let the blood dribble through his exposed fangs onto his shirt. As much as he wanted to, he wouldn't risk spitting at the doctor. It was too soon after the pain. He needed the blood. I concede your point, Mengele said affably. The riding crop was again doling out measured beats. Dracula is a literary construction. Well done. He smiled, and in the entry to the tent, the two wolf commando smiled as well, exposing large, sharp teeth that glinted dully in the electric light. Tell me about Tapus. Mengele's voice changed when he said the name. Did he turn you? It was eagerness the rat realized. Mengele was fascinated with Tepes, fascinated with the rat, and he knew with a cold, hard certainty that he had to escape, escape quickly, or he would become yet another subject from Mengele's dissections, his research. No, he said at last. Mengele waited. Vlad Tepes was just a man, honorable as far as it went. A good Christian. He was no precolisi. Flash. You lie. Mengele's voice came faint through the torrents of pain racking his body. Where is Tepes? Dead. The rat whispered. He coughed more blood. Dirty blood seeping into his lap. Dead. Flash. Where is Tepes? Dr. Mengele's voice was even. Where is Herr Dracul? The questioning went long into the night. At times the rat was lucky enough to lose consciousness, but it was never for long. Sunlight burned against his retinas. The rat groaned, tasting crusted blood on his lips. His skin was burning. He tried to move, found himself unable to. He was lying on bare earth by the feel of it, his hands and legs tied by thick ropes. 
The heat was unbearable. He turned his head to the side and opened his eyes cautiously, ignoring the sudden pain that shot through his brain. Sunrise. Over Mount Busegi, the sun was rising, dawn breaking over the Argus Valley. He was going to die. It was the cruelest way to kill a vampire. The stake, the silver bullet, the potent religious symbols. It was said truly old vampires feared the swastika most of all, the powerful old symbol corrupted by the Nazis. Of course, he thought, nowadays everyone, vampire or not, feared the swastika with reason. All these were relatively quick means, means of fear and urgency. This, though. Mengele chose well. It was as if the Impaler found himself a spiritual heir in this one, another man who knew how to attenuate pain, to stretch out the agony of his victims, making death seem like a blissful release when it came at last. He was stripped naked and tied to the ground, and the sun was slowly rising, heralding day, bringing death. It would last a long time. He tried desperately to shape-shift, trying to shrink to the minute figure of a rat. It was no use. He coughed blood and felt his skin begin to blister. It would be a long, painful death. But then, the rat thought, it was the way all Jews died nowadays. Compared to Mengele's test subjects in Auschwitz, his death would be brief, merciful. He howled in pain with a sudden anger that threatened to overwhelm him, coursing through his body like fire, like a keg of powder threatening to explode. The rat screamed hate to the skies. In the bowels of Bran Castle, Dr. Mengele nodded at the sound, as if acknowledging that an experimental result was satisfying. The wolf commando, digging through the earth and the dank room around him, smiled, showing white, elongated teeth. And in the membrane of the castle, in the old earth and the brittle bones of stone, in the deep shadows and the pure, undiluted dark, something stirred, as if disturbed from slumber. And in the shadows of the forest the partisans heard, and at last wary and afraid, they came to his aid. There was nothing, the rat thought later, lying buried in the damp ground, surrounded by darkness and silence, recuperating. Nothing to bind that group of desperate old men to him. They had no reason to feel love or kinship for him, the Strigoi. Yet they congregated around him, through webs of hate or desperation or shame and at last they came to him. Those who couldn't save the lives of their loved ones had saved his. He was burning when they reached him, the flames setting the ropes alight, still screaming defiance at the skies. They covered him in thick, heavy claws, dampening his fire, and cut his bonds, and silenced his shrieks. There were some men amongst them who knew about those things. They carried him deep into the forest, and buried him in a shallow grave, where the trees were thickest, and let no sunlight through, and waited for him. Immortally wounded, the rat slept in the earth. The partisans raided the farms nearby, procuring chickens and pigs, and laid traps in the forest for hares. When the rat rose at last, they fed him, 
dribbling the blood into his gaping mouth, each drop like a precious burgundy-colored stone falling into a chasm. The rat awoke, and he wasn't alone. All through his journey through the castle, through his torture, pinned up in the killing sun, buried in the earth, he could feel it. Ancient, angry, not human. Not Strigoi, either. Something has woken up at Castle Bran. Tirgovist, July 1944 There were rumors of impending change. It was there in the hushed conversations of stallholders in the market square and in the eyes of street children. It was there in the faint coded radio transmissions from underground cells all across Europe. It was everywhere. The Red Army was coming. The tide of war was turning. But for the partisans, hope was something that had died long ago, burned away with their families in faraway Auschwitz. High above the old church, the rat crouched like a gargoyle, blanketed in darkness, watching. The butcher of Auschwitz has not yet left Romania. Radio messages insisted he was back in Poland, back at his experiments, back to supervising the ovens. But the rat knew different. The Nazis were still there, still searching, in a manner he could only think of as desperate for the elusive Tepis, the Dracul. They have come finally to Turgovist, the Impaler's ancient capital, for one last attempt to enlist the help of the Fuhrer's imagined hero. The rat waited. Below, Turgovist's ancient market square was abandoned. A half-moon, large and misshapen, shone high in the horizon, casting the square in a pale, unearthly light. On the old flagstones, nothing moved. He waited. Presently, there was the sound of engines in the distance, growing louder. Narrow beams of light materialized as the sound intensified, moving frantically as a row of jeeps and the now-familiar truck entered the square in formation. The rat grinned, tasting the wind with his tongue, running it alongside his elongated fangs. Dogs. They had a special stench. He was looking forward to meeting them again. The wolf commando moved out of the jeeps and spread out, guns at the ready. Times were changing, and danger was more palpable now, more conceivable than when they first set out into what was, still was, officially friendly territory. Mengele stepped out of the truck. Behind him came the struggling figure of a young girl, clasped roughly by the arm and dragged along. The rat's eyes narrowed, but he didn't move. She was young, he estimated, no more than fifteen. She had the stark, dark beauty of a Sigani, a gypsy, and he felt the anger rising in him again, like a tide breaking against rock. It was a miracle there were any gypsies left, any that were not incinerated in the ovens along with the Jews. Mengele marched her forward, towards the church. The only sound in the square was that of his boots echoing distortedly, not corresponding entirely to his steps. The girl's bare feet made no sound on the flagstones. She looked frightened. The rat felt the hairs on his arms stand on end. It was the same feeling, that same presence he dimly felt at Bran, the one felt in his makeshift grave. 
Was it Tepes, he wondered? There was a lot in Transylvania that remained hidden, even from him. Perhaps. Mengele stopped in front of the church. His eyes roved over the building, then seemed to hover, almost stared directly at the point where the rat was crouched. A smile played on his lips. Impala! Mengele said loudly into the air. He extracted a long surgical blade from his jacket. Seeing this, the girl tried to wrench her arm away in panic. He hit her, a backhanded slap that sent her reeling onto the flagstones. I will make this sacrifice in the name of the Fjord! He extended his arm into the air, displaying a freshly laundered armband with a swastika on it. Heil Dracul! he shouted. On cue, the wolf commando all turned as one to face the church. Heil Dracul! they cried, extending their arms in a Nazi salute. The girl began to cry in loud, gaping sobs that seemed to suck in all the air around her. The feeling, the presence that the rat was feeling has intensified. He shifted his gaze, scanning the rooftops, noting the position of his men. They were going to take out the Nazis, no matter what happened. Mengele's hand came whipping down towards the girl, the blade glinting in the moonlight. It only took a moment. The blade cut across her neck, severing her cries, sending blood sprouting onto the ancient flagstones. The girl's body collapsed, crashing softly to the floor. She lay in a pool of blood, and Mengele waited, wiping the blade thoroughly on a handkerchief before returning it to his coat's pocket. The handkerchief he dropped, as if in distaste, on top of the body. In the sudden tension, the feeling of the presence was now overwhelming for the rat. A wind rose at the entrance to the church. Dust ebbed and flowed in complex patterns that floated and merged, forming eyes, mouths, liquid faces that changed and ran into each other. The wind formed mouths, some crooked, some bloodied, and spoke through them. It spoke in many voices, in old dialects of Romanian, of Magyar, of Mongol, and German. The sound was like a shock wave, sending Mengele reeling, disturbing the corpse so that it rolled pathetically on its side. Even the wolf commando were affected, crouching low against the bellows of sound and wind, their faces changing, teeth lengthening, rough hair growing uncontrollably. Ordug! The sound broke windows, threw carts in the air, intensifying. Porkwool! From above, the rat watched, trying to resist the power of the wind. It was trying to force him to change, to form himself into animal form, to revert to savagery, as it was doing to the Nazis below. His mind fought against the change, watching the metamorphosing faces, conjuring identities for them from the deepest recesses of his mind. There were boyars there, noblemen and petty kings, princes and bloodied rulers. He saw Tepes's face there, merging into that of a knight templar, then into an unfamiliar face with Asiatic features. They were all there, these ancient men who each fought for Transylvania and for Wallachia, 
these elder kings who were roused at last from their slumber. Ordog! The voices screamed. Pokoi! The rat gritted his teeth. Devil, the dead kings were shouting. And hell. It was as if they had finally encountered a kind of evil they couldn't understand. A precise and tidy kind. One that didn't gloat over its mutilated victims, but rather sat down to note the fact in volume after volume of leather-bound ledgers. Fighting the wind, the rat signaled to his men. The volley of ancient bullets flew like drunken mosquitoes through the turbulent air, ripping bloodied gashes in the animal hides of the wolf commando. The Germans roared, howling with anger and pain at the skies, at the partisans and the ghosts of the kings, and their howl was a thing of menace and fear intermingled. It was a tragedy, the rat thought, that the Nazis have managed to subdue even these wild and feral creatures and mold them in their own image. They smelled of a corruption that penetrated all the way to the soul. He prepared to jump. Below, the bellowing wind still fought the wolves, now entirely transformed, while from above, almost unnoticed in the confusion, the partisans rained down their bullets. If only we had silver, the rat thought, perhaps they would have made a difference. But this was war. What silver there was had gone, secreted away, or taken with on a pilgrimage of death. He jumped. The wind hit him like an iron bar. He stumbled, lashed out at a wolf who was too close. This was going to be fun. The bullet stopped as he landed, and now he had the square to himself. He felt the presence at his back quieting, shifting its attention to this creature who had fallen into their own private grievance. Then, Vrolog! The voices screamed, Vampire. There was a hint of amusement in its combined voice. The rat turned, lashed out again, and drew blood. His nails lengthened, became long, sharp spikes. His teeth extended, fangs extracting. The world was painted red in front of his eyes. Right here, right now, there was only one thing that mattered. Kill. He looked for Mengele. Scenting the man, he followed a bloody path through the wolves, lashing, biting, hitting. The wolves, already weakened by the wind and the bullets, did not fight as hard as the first one, back in Brasov. And by the time he had reached the truck, where his senses told him Mengele was hiding, he had left the corpses of three young men behind him. Seeing nothing but revenge in front of his eyes, the rat broke the door to the truck as if it were a toy, and in one fluid motion threw himself inside. The bullet struck him as he was airborne, slamming into him with hot, searing pain, throwing him to the floor. Through blooded eyes, the rat saw Mengele watching him levelly, carefully reloading a revolver with gleaming bullets. Inside, the noise of the storm abated somewhat, and the rat had a sudden feeling of unreal serenity, as if he was encased in a small, comforting cocoon, a metallic womb, or a coffin. It is fascinating, Mengele remarked. The phenomenon of silver poisoning in vampires. I have had occasion to experiment on the more, shall we say, unwelcome members of the populace. 
communists, Jews, gypsies, you know the type. He smiled casually at the rat. Who happen to possess these particular diseases, but so few. I'm so glad I found you. He aimlessly played with a couple of remaining bullets in his palm. Teeth, he said. Jewish teeth from my own foundry. Ironic, don't you think? He leveled the revolver in the rat's face. It's been an extraordinary pleasure. It really has. He pulled the trigger. In the moment before the bullet erupted, the rat sensed a sudden calm. Ancient instincts took hold of his body, metamorphosing his physical shape. As his body began assuming arduously the rat shape, he rolled, and in the moment the bullet fired, the source of the calm outside hit the truck with an unnatural force. Sound came crashing back around them as the supersonic waves of the force tore through the truck and sent it flying in the air, propelling it upwards and away. The rat, half in human form still and half a rodent, slid helplessly down through the open doors, falling with a hard, painful impact to the ground. Above him he could see the van, driven by the winds like a toy in the hand of capricious children, sailing over the market square and beyond the town's walls. For a long moment the rat followed the movement of the truck, until from far away came the sound of a reverberating crash. Then, at last, he passed out. Bucharest, September, 1945 the rat stood in the shadow of the great train station, looking dubiously at the newly purchased ticket in his hand. It had taken a long time for his wounds to heal following the disastrous episode at Turgoviste. Only a few months later, after his faithful partisans have operated on him yet again, pulling out silver bullets, preparing a shallow grave for the second time, scouring for blood, did he ask about Mengele. There was no body found. Turgovist's market square was nearly destroyed. The corpses of the wolf commando remained, and their bodies were carted to a common grave and set alight. The apparition of the old kings of Tepes himself had disappeared, and Castle Bran was once again inhabited by the living remnants of the royal family, the queen and her children, cowering against the might of politics. Soon they too would flee and nothing would remain but a tourist attraction. As the rat languished in his makeshift grave, Romania turned. In August 1944, the Red Army marched into Bucharest, and by the beginning of 1945, Hitler was in his bunker in Berlin, surrounded on all sides by the Allied forces. It was the end. And the rat had decided it was also a beginning. Draped in his new clothes, dark and unassuming, holding an English cigarette between his teeth, the rat searched for the platform of the train to the coast. The old world was dying, its dark forces powerless in the face of what later philosophers would call the banality of evil. Humanity could provide more evil, more pain and suffering and humiliation than any legend up in the Carpathians. It brought about a cold, efficient mass murder, and it had done so sitting civilly around the table, drinking tea and listening to orchestral music. And the old world was dying. Decisive now, the rat threw down the cigarette on the floor, ground it with his foot, and climbed aboard the train. 
He was going to a new world. The new world. The train with a bellow of steam pulled out of the station, heading for the coast and the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. And in the small port in Greece, the rat had decided he would follow the rest of the war's survivors, the rest of the uprooted and the homeless. In the words of so many before him, he would take ship to America. The rat settled down in the narrow chair, leaning against the window. He opened his coat's pocket and took out the by-now bruised and worn book, Stoker's book, and with the immigrant's hunger for the language of his new homeland, began rereading the familiar passages as behind him the Carpathian Mountains disappeared slowly from view. Come on, did you like that? Oh, fantastic. Both, Jim, Lavi, thank you so much. I'll try and get some more work off Lavi today because that is just fantastic. That should be Nazis. <laughs> fantastic. So, on to English Assassin with another review. Simon, sir, Simon Inglulier. Simon, what have you got today? Hi, Tony. The English Assassin here. And. Today I want to discuss uh, something that's been on my mind to discuss for a little while, and that is the cult British television show Survivors. Um, I'm kind of following on the theme from uh, last month when I uh, talked about The Death of Grass by John Christopher. Um, Of course this might seem like a canny piece of opportunism to, to anybody who knows the basic premise of Survivors, which is basically that the world has been wiped out by a pandemic plague, which obviously the current swine flu scare seems to uh, seems to mirror. However, this isn't the case. I was genuinely going to cover survivors anyway. So, you, But you have to take my word on that. I know, of course, this could just be another example of real life reflecting in art rather than the other way around. So, back on topic... Um, I'm going to cover, just discuss quickly Survivors, the original TV series, which ran from 75 to 77. The novelization that came out in um, 1976, I think, and has been recently republished. And I'm briefly going to have a look, just as a comparison, with the, the, the new incarnation Survivors, which came out in 2008. Anyway, Survivors was first broadcast in 1975 on BBC television, telling the story of a small group of predominantly middle-class survivors who, from some natural immunity, have managed to pull through this mysterious man-made virus that's wiped out 99% of the world population. Survivors was the brainchild of Terry Nation, uh, the cult scriptwriter, and inventor of the Daleks and Blake Seven, amongst many other um, cult British television icons. Survivors was a brave attempt to show how helplessly dependent modern British society had become upon manufactured technology, and how disconnected we'd become from the natural world. All very much in the tradition of the classic British post-apocalypse novels. Uh, and very much jumping on the self-sufficiency zeitgeist of the times. Right from the opening, Survivors uh, grabs your attention. It's a classic storytelling uh, title sequence, which shows um, 
a man in a face mask handling some f- liquid in in a laboratory, dropping the liquid, cracking open, and then him, or you presume, presumably him, who, who is revealed to be a Chinese gentleman boarding several flights. We see a stamp, a passport stamped at various locations: New York, London, Moscow, etc. And then we see these Chinese gentlemen faint some as he as he leaves a plane and from this obviously we can infer that the virus is man made and it's been spread all over the world of course this is relatively poignant um certainly reminiscent of the current swine flu scare but also uh, the 2003 SARS outbreak um and bird flu and, and every other media scare that's come out terry nation's uh, agenda for the show was predominantly this the, the, the sort of simple idea that could you removed from all the complexities of um, modern society, our technology, our our, our produce, our our, our um, manufactured items, could you make something as simple as a candle? Could you make something as simple as a table? Could you start from scratch? Could you make any item that surrounds you from scratch? And of course, the answer is pretty much no. Uh, and this is the um, the premise behind the show. Uh, it's in, in many ways, the show deviates from that premise fairly early on, which is unfortunate. But um, it still has this interesting thread um, interweaving f- throughout the series. Ultimately, the main failings of the show come from, um, shall we say, the equivalent of musical differences, conceptual differences... Uh, between Terry Nation and the series producer uh, Terence Dudley, uh, Terry was very much uh, Terry Nation. That is, was very much interested in uh, producing an adventure show where the more philosophical elements would be a backdrop and a motivation for the characters to get into scrapes, effectively. While producer Terence Dudley was much more interested in showing a pastoral series with uh, a Garian rebirth um, of society after the apocalypse. This conflict um, of interests or conflict of ideas ultimately led to the, the, the first series going quite off track and um, a quite appalling second series. The main story arc revolving around Abby's search for a missing son uh, despite the statistical unlikeliness of him surviving too. However, the search plot device helps give the show much needed direction and is very much representative of Terry Nation's um, philosophy of the show. Um, looking back at Survivors now, it's very much a product of its age, um, and that's part of its charm. The good guys are terribly middle class, and the working classes are always dis- displaced being lazy, uh, at best, and uh, at worst, murderous or power-crazed. Survivors is also hideously cosy. If Brian Aldis finds dead, the truth is too co- cosy. I can't imagine what you must think of this. The low budget plays a part in the depiction of the apocalypse. There are surprisingly few dead bodies shown to us. And, and much of the apocalypse, in fact, almost every single episode takes part in a rural setting. Um, I think it's only in the second series where we have two episodes where the protagonists have to go into London. And we see very little signs of the, the plague in the first series. 
Instead, the, instead, the series Survivors depicts the post-plague world by a growing sense of stillness, loneliness and isolation. The novel of Survivors, um, coming out a year after the first series, tells a story uh, as originally uh, conceived by Terry Nation, um, a, a very much focused on the character Abby and her um, quest to find her missing child. The first two thirds of the novel are pretty much uh, true to the first six episodes of the first series of Survivors, showing, probably spending a little bit too much time showing uh, the, the the pre-apocalyptic um, coming of the plague. The novel lacks a, a literary edge of the of the better post-apocalyptic novels. Um, we get li- li- little sort of of the inner dialogue of the characters, still. Terry Nation tells a good story. His writing is certainly no worse than can be found in much of genre fiction. His plotting is tight and the action is punchy. However, the real reason to check out the novel, especially if you're a fan of the original series, is we see what happens to the Abbey storyline with her son, which is never gets resolved in the television series. The actress who plays Abby, Caroline Seymour, gets written out of the show because Terence Dudley didn't like her <laughs> which is fair enough I suppose but unfortunately this means um, the show loses direction very badly after the first series here the novel is concentrated on Abby's quest for a son and here is where the novel delivers a sucker punch that many novels are put to shame for fans of the series it's pretty much essential reading um it shows where the the series might have gone in the fall of 2008 a new updated series of survivors came onto British television perhaps the only surprise is that it took 30 years to do so now it's going to be all too easy for me to be the grumpy old man and lay straight into it saying the original is much better uh, television today is a load of old crap etc etc but I'm afraid the original is better. I tell you, television today is a load of old crap. Sorry, it's true. Still, the new Survivors isn't terribly bad in the cold light of day. Just a little bland, maybe. Possibly the original was a little bland too in its day. Still, the original Survivors would score high in other respects. It certainly wasn't really a TV show, I would say, that was designed for the kiddies in, in, in the same way that Doctor Who was. I'm sure it's no prisoner, uh, but neither is it as kitsch or maybe as inaccessible as the prisoner was. Survivors was also uh, highly topical in its day, um, I suppose with the current swine flu scare, um, might make the, the, the what presumably will be a second series of the new Survivors this fall, might make it seem a little bit more um, probable than it maybe did last year. However, it hardly seems to condense so many issues of it, of its age, age, the age today, as the old one did 30 years ago. The new show stays incredibly faithful, really, to the old show. Um, it adds a few extra characters and it changes and updates a few of them here and there. Um, however, it doesn't seem to really share the, the, the original show's philosophy. It pays only lip service to Terry Nation's old query. How would you make a candle from scratch? The new show is more interested in action and melodrama. 
which I guess is in theory could make it more faithful to Terry Nation's view. However, as I say, it lacks any great philosophical depth. Also, of course, action and melodrama are fairly commonplace on the television today. Therefore, it's hard to see how what will make the show stand out. In many ways, it's a post-apocalypse EastEnders, whereas the original was a post-apocalypse Archers or Emmerdale Farm. Both the original version and the new version of Survivors is available on DVD, and Survivors, the, the novel, is also available. Uh, at a relatively reasonable price of £6.99 and it's published by Orion. In summing up, Survivors is an interesting show um, and an ambitious show. Unfortunately, it never really achieves what it sets out to achieve. However, despite its failings, of which there are many, the original show does make interesting watching, if at times it is a little bit cringeable, I'm afraid. And I would recommend tracking it down on DVD if uh, if you see it at the right price. The novel is also well worth catching, uh, getting hold of, um, if you're stuck for something to read. It's certainly totally readable without knowing the, 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 the TV series. The As for the new version of Survivors, certainly it's worth catching on television. It's not the worth, worst way to spend an hour of your day, but uh, at the same time, I won't be joining the fan club. That's all from me, The English Assassin. I'll put some notes on my blog, which is theenglishassassin.wordpress.com, uh, about all things to do with survivors, with a few links and what have you. That's all from me. See, I like Simon's work there. Simon, thank you so much, because this is things that I wouldn't kind of get into, you know what I mean? And I wouldn't not, not get into, I just, I've not heard about it, I've never kind of come across it. And this is, that's something special when you, you get introduced something like that. And, you know, you, you, you're using Simon's kind of gateway. What a great review, Simon, so thank you so much. So that is Oral Delights, show number 87. I just want to mention again, look at the artwork today, because I'm, I'm chuffed a bit with that and... Stephen's getting that in like ages ago, and it's just been kind of in the the vault of Starship so far. But it's finally saw the light of day, and it's excellent. Stephen is primarily a Potter and sculptor with a secret identity of a high school teacher. He lives in Salt Lake City, Utah, with his wife and three kids. And he's given a little kind of description of how he's he's made this picture, or how he's this created this illustration. He did a rough sketch that was made on hardboard with watercolours. It was then scanned in Adobe Photoshop for some tweaks, he says. He used the magic eraser tool to delete and change background values to add mass quantities of blood and gore. That's the way. Photoshop to add blood and gore. He says he usually makes three layers with the Photoshop. One of the original drawn, the next is a line drawn with no colours, and then the third is like a paint layer. And he says he loves the airbrush tool. So hopefully we're going to get some more work off Stephen as well. So do look out for that. And like I say, please put it on your websites, put it on your blogs. That would be fantastic for both me and Stephen. So Stephen, thank you so much. So there you go. Oral Delights, show number 87. Wrapped up and put to bed. And like I say, on the day Newcastle got relegated from the Premiership Division. Soul destroying to be quite honest. How can we go on? All grown men, Jordy's crying in their beers. <laughs> it'll be a, oh, it'll be a downer time today, tonight. Oh, shocking. Anyway, I hope it's not shocking where you are. 
Don't forget, if you want to support the Starship Sova, we do the Oral Delights. I don't do the Oral Delights, but I do the Sanatorium Show. £2.50 a month subscription gets you a private show of my good self. We also have the Sofa Nord Show, like I mentioned at the beginning of the show. Do pop over there and just subscribe. Great little show, fun debates, and sometimes very political debates. That's it. I hope everyone has a great week and a great weekend. Until next time, I would just like to say a good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1... Starship Silver, if you want to support the